0: Hello, everyone! Welcome to another episode of Clubroid and Clubroid Radio. Uh, it is just myself tonight, running solo. I tried this before with Chris Painshev, and that was one of the two lost episodes we talked about last episode. So, I'm cautiously optimistic, though, because our guest tonight has a solid internet connection, and hopefully, all will be well. So the yes, so the guest tonight is uh, Roy Blodgett. Did I say that right? You did, yeah. Blow yeah. As far, yeah all right, as, as far as I know, <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> From, uh, uh, I just forgot the name of your Well Springs Herbiculture.
1: Yep. Yeah, Well right, Herbiculture. We yep.
0: Yes, Nailed and um, a lot of people have asked for a Spelody's episode, and I, 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 two names popped into my head. Um, one was definitely Roy, and the other one was Jason Hood, and we have every mm-hmm. intention to having them both on. And what's kind of awesome is that uh, Roy and Jason, I know that they respect each other, and I also know that they keep in two different ways. So you're going to get very different perspectives on Speloides, which is awesome because you're going to get the full gamut by doing it this way, uh, which is something that I always like to do, present the the variety of uh, how we go down with this. Now, I talked to Jason at Tinley, and he said that he was more than willing to come on, and and hopefully that will... Come to fruition. Uh, Normally we do the banter, but I don't have my co-host to do the banter with, so I guess I'll just do a couple little odds and ends that I I totally forgot to talk about on the last episode. Uh, One thing that I can do is a book update, because the book, That Will Not Die, still is is breathing. It's not been sent out to the publisher yet. Um, We had a development... Uh, which was Mark O'Shea has agreed to write the foreword, but he also said that he was going to review the entire book. And it's kind of crazy having one of your childhood heroes review your first book. Uh, that was a surreal surreal moment for me because I, truth be told, back in the day, the early 2000s, um, you had the choice of Mark O'Shea's Big Adventure and then you had Steve Irwin with Crocodile Hunter. And, uh, I was in grad school, undergrad when Marco Shea was on, and I fully 100% was an O'Shea geek over Irwin. Like Irwin, but I like Marco Shea better. So the fact that he's read this book and, and his fingerprints are all over it, I think it makes it that much better. Um, but what I did learn is, uh, that I had some of my systematics and taxonomy a little bit off. So I've been cleaning that up. And then, uh, when you have somebody from Great Britain review your American writing, <laughs> there's basically a, a, um, a culture clash there. And I went with the Brit's way of writing over the American way. So I'm got some grammar and, and things like that, that I got to clean up and I'm doing that actually this break. So all of the proposed revisions have been done, uh, except for my phyldrius chapter, which, uh, whew, taxonomy with that group is in literal nightmare. Um, and thank God O'Shea does what he does and helped me clean up. I had a bunch of questions for him. Some of the, some of the decisions I made were correct. Some of them were woefully incorrect. Not like a little bit incorrect, but choosing a genus, and I chose the wrong one, and, and I understand why now and learned, and that's what's you know the best thing about this entire process. I think the world really needs to be able to take some constructive criticism again. And I um, I teach my students that, and I've certainly done it. And the, the product of it is I was proud of the book before, but now it's like next level. So uh, got to get that thing done and hope to have it sent to the publishers and in print by uh, Russ and I have an ambitious goal, but we think we can have the whole thing wrapped up by the March Tinley. So we, I might be at Tinley, may not be at Tinley, but hopefully the book's at Tinley. Uh, so that's kind of our 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 goal to have everything done and, and, and ready for. So that's that. And then the other bit of news that I have, um, we won't be recording next week. Uh, it's right before Thanksgiving. Um, that field station that my university is building in Costa Rica, um, I get to go down there all next week. It's kind of a work trip. So we're like planning, and, and I'm going to be like 10 feet away from a jungle working on a computer, which seems kind of sinful, uh, but we got to get all the um, plans and documents and everything done, and you just, you can't do that stuff, there's a certain point when when doing things with Zoom and email, it just becomes an inefficient piece, so I'll be down there and hopefully I get to see a snake or two, uh, so that's my two updates, so other than that, we're just going to jump right in this go-around, so Roy, how you doing, sir?
1: I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really uh, honored to to be here.
0: Yeah, no. Uh, Roy and I have communicated off and on. Uh, The book I was just talking about has a big, chunky, burly Xenodon chapter for Xenodon pulcher, and that's one of the species that Roy keeps. I love (laughs) the way Roy keeps them with his naturalistic enclosures, and Roy might have more than a handful of pictures in that chapter. (laughs) So, um But no, we're not going to be talking about tricolors tonight, though. We'll save that for another episode. Um, Sounds good. We are definitely going to be talking about uh, spiloides. So before we get into that, I know you've been on several podcasts, and I know that you you have kind of this interesting herpetoculture backstory, but I think Mm -hmm. it's been a little while since you were on a podcast and kind of told the story. Because I think the story is really interesting because Mm -hmm. it's actually – somewhat similar to the way to my backstory where i was in herpetoculture i left and then i came back in and i feel like i came in back in i don't want to say better but at the same time better more prepared more mature i don't know what the hell the word is so yeah. uh why don't you just kind of give everybody your backstory and how you ultimately ended up being kind of geared towards these snakes that you work with
1: Yeah. Okay. So, um, I grew up in a household with a lot of animals. Um, my dad was a reptile keeper. He had a really eclectic collection. Um, he also had a bunch of tarantulas and I think at one point we had something like 65 animals in the house. So, um, it was just kind of there for me. It was in the, in the, um, in the water, you know, that I was swimming Mm -hmm. in and, um, yeah you know my first pet was a california king snake one of my earliest memories is being three years old my dad bought me this little california king at a reptile show and um yeah so you know growing up as even just as a little little kid reptiles were around herpiculture was happening um or at least reptile keeping was happening Mm -hmm. and um In entering into my teenage years, it kind of accelerated for me. And I really started to get deeper into it and, um, really wanted to learn how to breed reptiles. You know, I, I I had, you know, 10 years worth of reptiles magazine issues that my dad, you know, was a subscriber to that. I just like, I read every single one cover to cover over and over and over again until they were just shredded. And, um, I started breeding bearded dragons and mm-hmm. um, a couple other, you know, random reptiles here and there. Um, but I was developing a pretty strong interest in um, big neotropical colubrids. Um, so yellowtail crebos, blacktail kribos um, spilotes, uh, seustes. And um, I spent a lot of time on the, indigo forum on kingsnake.com which was kind of the center Mm -hmm. of gravity of that community at that time this was around 2005 2006 and i remember um coming across um um someone posting about um their spolodi sulfurius and i had never seen this species before um up to that point except for i think in a couple couple like um images from like that uh into the fields column that was on Reptiles mm-hmm. magazine and um, which was like my favorite part of the magazine. And I was just blown away. Um at this time those snakes were classified as Sustis sulfurius. Um and um were also grouped alongside Sustis postalonatis, um, which is now Phrinonax. And these all these kind of arboreal um Big eyes, sight-oriented, glubrids really drew my attention. And um, not long after that, I had an opportunity to purchase a pair of, uh, 1.1 pair of Sulfurius that came up on the kingsnake.com classifieds. And this time I was, um, I guess I was 15 or 16 years old. And, um, it was a pretty unforgettable experience receiving that box and just, um, opening up this box and having this, uh, nine foot yellow, um, male sulfurious come out, just full threat display, puffing up, trying to, trying to bite my face. Just, it was like, holy moly, I've never seen anything like this before. And, um, Within a week of having those snakes, I realized that the female was gravid. Um Whoa. so these were these are both wild caught imported um snakes that um were fresh off the boat pretty much when I got them and um so this female had come in gravid. And I kind of had this moment of just like holy crap. Like huh. I'm about to receive eggs from these snakes and at that point um only one person that I know of in the U S had hatched those snakes. And, um, his name is Tom Mm -hmm. Davis. He had hatched them, I think the year before, or maybe a couple years before, um, he had hatched one clutch at that point. And, um, so these were kind of like totally unknown snakes for the most part. And, um, I had actually never hatched eggs from a snake at that point. I had, I had hatched a lot of lizard eggs, but never snakes. And I was excited and terrified. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remember you know reaching out to a lot of the guys on that forum um for advice and you know a a few of them really helped me out in terms of getting those eggs set up for success and you know i I hatched them after 97 days of incubation all of them hatched using a little hover chicken incubator (laughs) and um and that was like uh, completely life changing moment for me. Um, you know, I was, I was living in a trailer park with my mom in the city, you know, (laughs) pretty poor, um, Mm -hmm. not the easiest life, not the easiest life circumstances. And, you know, I just remember like every single day checking that incubator two or three times a day to see Mm -hmm. any movement on those eggs. And, um, you know, I remember getting ready for school and going to check the incubator out the door and seeing, um, you know, a little cut in one of the eggs and just being like, I'm not going to school today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and my mom was like, no problem. You you know, that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. This is important. And I just sat there and just waited for the eggs to hatch. And, you know, over the following, you know, 24, 48 hours, all of these eggs hatched and these beautiful little black and white, um, snakes or black and gray snakes emerged from these eggs. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a profound experience. And I, I just remember being really keenly aware at the time, seeing those eggs hatched that, um, very few people ever had witnessed that before. And that I was, um, really, um, fortunate to have that experience. And, um, yeah so that was a huge moment and honestly not so long after that within six months of that or, or maybe even a shorter time frame um, things kind of deteriorated for me and my living situation at home and um, I, I kind of was just in a predicament where I kind of had to get out of that environment and get out on my own and that meant um, finding homes for all my animals and so I kind of um, hastily um gave away and sold all of my reptiles um including all the baby sulfurous um and and kind of quietly just disappeared from herpetoculture and and spent um the next 10 years basically all of my 20s essentially um just kind of taking care of myself learning how to um um be in an adult <laughs> and um you know, after that 10 year, um, hiatus, uh, a, a lot, of, I should also say that a lot of that time I was kind of focused on, um, like natu- developing naturalist skills and kind of ecological mm-hmm. literacy. And, um, I did, I was doing a lot of like wildlife tracking and just, um, just spending a lot of time outside by myself and, um, doing a lot of field herping and, you know, around, um, I think it was, um, late summer of 2018. I started to kind of get the itch again and it was kind of like, you know, I think it, I think I'd like to keep a couple snakes and see how it goes uh-huh. again. Um, you know, it was a really painful experience. And I, like, on some level, I would even say kind of, kind of traumatic, um, dismantling my collection the way that I had to, and kind of getting out of the hobby. And also I think at that time, I was, I was in over my head, uh, you know, as a teenager working with a bunch of really big, um, Hmm. complicated species to work with. Um, and it was definitely too much. And so I, I remember being really keenly aware of that. Um, when I was starting to think about getting back involved, but I felt like, okay, I'm in a much better place in my life. Um, I'm an adult, I have some income. And, um, so I, I was like, well, if there's a species I want to keep, it's, it's below sulfurous. Um, <laughs> and, <Yep>. um, <laughs> you know, it was like, that's, I was just that, that, um, image of seeing those eggs hatch was just seared in my mind. And, and so I Googled, you know, like, is anyone working with, <laughs> you know, with these snakes? <laughs> and, um, I quickly found Jason hood. Um, at this time I wasn't even on, I wasn't even on Facebook or anything like that. So I didn't even know Facebook was like a, where the herp community had coalesced at that point. It was kind of a surprise when I, when I learned that. Um, but I emailed Jason and said, Hey, you, you know, this is who I am. And, um, are you still working with these snakes? Are you having any success with them? And I also kind of offhandedly was like, also, do you happen to know this guy, John Anderman? Um, because I know that I knew that John had ended up with a couple of the babies or with one of the babies that I had hatched. And, um, I was just wondering if he was still working with snakes. And so Jason wrote me back, um, I think within like a couple hours and was like, I know exactly who you are. Um, I tried to find you a few years ago <laughs> and we all thought you were dead. <laughs> there you go. And he's like, he's nice. like, I, he's like, I thought you were, I thought you were an old guy. I didn't realize you were a young guy. Your, your name's Roy, and uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which I get a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, and yeah, I know John. And he had CC'd John on the email and said, Look, Roy's back from the dead. And um, mm-hmm. and sure enough, John wrote back and he said, Yeah, Roy, I have one of those snakes that you hatched, and now it's now it's 10 feet long. And um, nice. <laughs> it's, it's the it's the biggest, as far as we know, the biggest below these in captivity right now, and an absolute beast, puppy dog tame. Um, and so it was also just like kind of this amazing experience of of like kind of immaculate timing because literally like within a few weeks of me, um, sending that email, John had decided that he wanted to move along, um, that snake that I had hatched and another that he had had, um, that he had purchased from Tom Davis, um, to pair with it because he just hadn't had any success breeding them. And um, for those who don't know who John Anderman is, he's, he doesn't have a huge social media presence or anything like mm-hmm. that, but he is, he has been the man for um, Spilodes for a long time. Yep. Um, and particularly the Tomalepin, um locality um, of Spilodes Mexicanus, the, the northernmost species, mm-hmm. which are also the rarest and kind of most coveted in herpetoculture. Um so for him to not be having success with them was just pretty aberrant and um ultimately, long story short, he sent me to the snakes and I got to receive this snake that I had hatched. Um That's crazy. You know, ten years, eleven years prior. Yeah, which was just crazy timing. And um I soon learned not long after that that um the other snake um, the reason why they hadn't been breeding is because they were both males. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> that was yeah. a problem. Uh-huh. And so, um, and so I learned that because, um, keeping them together, um, I kept him in this kind of interesting vivarium kind of modeled after John's vivariums where he kind of keeps them in a, a two level, um, animal plastics, um, set up with a pass through between them that he can open up or close. And so when I opened up that pass through, um, I was noticing some really interesting behavior that looked kind of kind of like <laughs> combat. <laughs> uh, <yeah>. uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know, at first I was like, Is this courtship or is what's happening? You know, my big my big male um was chasing the other one and kind of they were doing the whole arm wrestling thing, you know, and pinning mm-hmm. and a little bit of tail biting happening and I was like, This isn't going well and um and ultimately I sexed that other snake and was like, yep, sure enough, it's a male. So I ended up finding another home for that guy because I didn't have room for two, two big males. Um, this other snake was approaching 10 feet as well. And, um, and kind of began searching in earnest for an adult female, uh, sulfurius, which isn't necessarily yeah, the easiest thing not to find.
0: That's easy to find.
1: Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> um, and I think it was maybe six months later or something like that. Um, one popped up on fauna classifieds and, um, I, I bought it immediately. A wild caught import, uh green phase female. And, um, you know, she, at this point, like the, at the time that she arrived, she was 800 grams and mm-hmm. my male was about 2,800 grams holy crap um so a huge you know size difference and so i was like okay i've, I've got some time and some work to put in here to get this girl mm-hmm. up the size to even be in the same ballpark as him and um so I started working on establishing her and then a little while later i got another female from the same folks um another imported female who's even smaller 500 grams and um so the last few years have really been about, um, getting those two females, um, properly established and, um, ready to breed with this big male while simultaneously knowing that the clock is ticking with this male because, um, you know, that when I got him back, he was already 11 years old and, yeah. um, because he is part of that first generation of sulfurous born in captivity, we don't actually really know their lifespan. He's going to be kind of mm-hmm. the one to tell us. And, um, but we do know a little bit more about Platus, and usually 12 to 14 is kind of what you can expect. So right now that big sulfurious, um, he'll be 15 in two weeks. Um, and still going strong. So, Um, it'll be interesting to see how, how long he goes, but anyway, um, now both of those females are much bigger. They're up around 2000 grams and, um, the last couple years, um, has been a, has been a kind of a a project of trying to get them to breed and trying to get viable eggs. And, um, the first two years in a row I got, um, I received eggs from that green female, that slightly larger female, but they were infertile. Mm -hmm. And, um, then last year I, um, I received a clutch from her again, third year in a row. Um, Mm -hmm. and they looked a bit different. They looked kind of like, they looked like weird eggs. They were a little funky. Um, but they, they were clearly different than the slugs I had received the two years prior. So I incubated them and um after 112 days of not hatching um and the eggs having dented for about a week without pipping i cut an egg and what i found was um ultimately kind of deformed neonates they had they were fully they were huh. fully developed but deformed and um that was true for all of those eggs so, um that was a bit of a heartbreaker. <laughs> after, yeah, totally. After, you know, so much time put in. Um and then um this year, um on August 2nd, I actually received clutches from both of the females. So, well, the slightly the smaller day? female on the exact same day. That's and That's interesting. Yeah, um and <laughs> they also nested in the same place. They nested together which was really oh, cool. interesting. Um, so, um, but it was interesting to receive eggs from both of them. So it's the first time that the, the smaller females kind of a yellow, like more gold phase female. It's the first time she laid eggs for me. And um, she laid eggs about six hours before the other one did. And um, it was kind of a similar thing. It was kind of like, I'm not positive. These are fertile. They look a little bit off, but I'm going to, I'm going to put them in the incubator. And, um just um this past week, those eggs hatched, and um, yeah, I know all, Congrats, all eleven yeah, <laughs> so all eleven of those eggs hatched, and um yeah, so it's kind of a full circle moment here, mm-hmm. you know with with and um all signs indicate that that male seemingly got the job done i um mm-hmm. you know, I kind of after that clutch last year, i I had the feeling that those, those eggs may have been a result of parthenogenesis just because of the way they were presenting. Yeah. And, um, a lot of people kind of had the same kind of hunch about it. I also just had never really witnessed courtship or at least obvious signs of courtship. And so, um, I kind of expected the same this year and, um, I, that's, I don't think that's the case just cause all of these babies are so vigorous and healthy and they all hatched. So, yeah, that's a bit a bit of a fire hose <laughs> intro, but yeah, um, that was good. that's that's the full circle. <laughs> hmm.
0: So, yeah. the babies that you just received mm-hmm. are the progeny of the first babies that you hatch.
1: Seemingly so, yeah. Over a that decade seems ago. to be, Yep,
0: that's that's a pretty badass story. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> that's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> uh
0: huh. Yeah, no, that, that's that's. That's super cool. So, um, with with the sulfurius, uh, I know that you're a big time naturalistic keeper. I, mm-hmm. I know that you know your ethos for for keeping is definitely more on the naturalistic uh, mm-hmm. side of things. Maybe not necessarily bioactive 100, mm-hmm. but but naturalistic. And one of the things I teach my kids and or my students is that. I I kind of feel like bioactivity is a good thing to strive for, but it's not always like that. Doesn't necessarily mean that it it, it is the like penultimate way of keeping things because things like a ten foot sawfarius <laughs> when it goes to the bathroom, I, you're gonna need like ten pounds of isopods to eat that. Duke <laughs> is that a fair statement?
1: Well, um, <laughs> yes, yes, and no. So yes, and no. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, um, yeah, so I, I keep, I keep my adult trio, um, my 1.2 trio in a big, big old honking vivarium. Um, Mm -hmm. it's eight foot by three foot by six foot and it's fully decked out with, um, you know, a a universal rocks background and ledges and planters and it's fully planted with, species only native to, um, or species that are native to Suriname where the snakes are, you know, bloodlines originate from. And, um, it's, it's interesting because the first six months or so of having that vivarium set up and cycling, I did remove the majority of the waste from the snakes, um, when they would, when they would scat. But, um, at this stage, I actually don't. I can see your expression. Um, (laughs) yeah. So essentially what I do is, um, is I just, I, um, I kind of cycle the scat into the, into the soil layer of the vivarium and there are a ton of springtails and isopods and microfauna in there and it disappears. I mean, it's, it becomes soil very quickly. Um, and at this point, I mean that vivarium it's, just to give an idea of how much just the volume of substrate in there is, is extreme. Um, Mm -hmm. I I recently moved and, um, moving that vivarium was twice as much work as moving all of my other vivariums combined. It was, (laughs) it was a huge task. And, um, when I was removing the substrate, I got to the point where I had, 12 five-gallon buckets full of substrate. And it and it looked like I hadn't removed even half of the substrate yet from uh-huh. the librarian. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, how the hell did I get that much <laughs> substrate in there in the first place? Yeah. I don't remember doing that. Uh-huh. I don't remember it being this much substrate. But, you know, I did put a bunch in there. And then over time also, I was adding leaf litter that in that, that thing, it is an engine and it it is, it Uh runs on leaf litter, you know? And you know, I, I, I get a garbage bag full of leaves in there and I could do that once a month easily and they just get digested by that vivarium. Um, and so ultimately it was about literally a pickup truck bed full of soil. Um, and there's not quite that much on it now but uh-huh. it, it is a lot of soil. So, um, I think it's possible to do it that way. I haven't had any issues. I don't have issues with like smell or like, um, you know, a super nitrogenous, you know, nasty buildup in there or anything like that. Um, it seems very healthy so far, but, um, I'm also unsure of like what the long-term you know carrying capacity mm-hmm. is you know yeah. at this point that 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 vivarium's been up and running for two years at that and has been doing great but at some point that might have, i might have to change or i'll have to probably you know remove a quantity of substrate and replace it that kind of thing
0: so that that gets us to your your way of keeping yeah. which is these animals aren't in they're certainly not in rack systems, they're certainly mm-hmm. not being kept in a you know the p v c I- enclosure with stick here, stick there, hide box mulch yeah. so so what kind of what was the driver for not necessarily keeping the snakes that either of those ways and mm-hmm. rather building this big naturalistic vivaria because I like you, one of our definite similarities. You don't hear many people talk about how the emphasis of their collo- their collection is like South American colubrids. That just isn't – like there's <laughs> there's there's all – people have North American colubrids. They have old world rat snakes. But I can only really think of you and me that have a div- – and I know there's more than us. But yeah. it's like kind of this foci on xenodontines is what many of them mm-hmm. are, though yours is a colubrine but basically um the South American region. So I know yeah. that that has something to do with your naturalistic keeping, but uh mm-hmm. what what was your driver for basically saying I'm not going to keep these uh the way that lots of people do. I'm going to keep them the way I want to and that is going to be a naturalistic way. So like yeah. Kind of talk through that process cuz I think that this is really cool.
1: Yeah, so um you know, I mean, I think in some ways it's, I've always been interested in that way of keeping, you know, even even back when I was a teenager keeping these snakes, I did still, um, at, you know, in some ways in that time I was kind of doing things in a kind of avant-garde way for, for that time period because I was still mixing my own substrates. Um, not very different from the mixes I make now. I still was using leaf litter that I would collect mm-hmm. outside, um, you know, the whole bioactive wasn't a term that was yeah, in popular it usage at that time <laughs> at all, you know? And, um, but, but I, you know, I was, I was striving to create the most natural environment I could within, you know, my extreme limitations at the time. And, um, yeah, you know, I think that having that background kind of as a naturalist spending that time, that 10 mm-hmm. years away and really focusing on field herping a lot and, um, and just being out in nature a lot. I, um, I really just like, that's, that's what's inspiring to me about working with reptiles is, is connecting with that. Um, and you know, I, I, I think about like the Amazon for me, like I have like an almost kind of like, it has like an almost mystical reverence in my mind, Mm -hmm. you know, as like Mm -hmm. this is like the cradle of like, the most biodiversity in the Western hemisphere is here, yeah. you know, and it's just, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just extraordinary to me to think about it and to imagine it. And, um, it's just like, there's something enigmatic about that. And so I think that, um, part of it is just seeking to replicate that. Um, but also it's acknowledging that, um, you know, all of these animals and, you know, exist in like a, they're in a, they're in a co-evolutionary relationship with their surroundings, you know, on some Mm -hmm. level, of course, you know? And, um, I think that there are interesting novel behaviors that you can observe. Um, if you strive for a higher level of, um, natural replication and keeping and, um, you know, for me as a, as a reptile keeper, um, that's kind of my highest priority actually is, is, um, providing, the um, environments for my animals to express the broadest array of natural behaviors that I can see. Um, and that's even higher for me than, than breeding, um, and reproducing them is necessarily, although obviously that can be one of those natural behaviors, Mm -hmm. um, that may emerge from that. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of the philosophy behind it, you know, and, and it's definitely, um, it imposes limitations, you know, totally different oh, yeah. limitations. No. And, um, I was so aware of that when that was part of what I was really aware of when I was coming back to herpetoculture culture was like, I don't want, I don't want to exceed my limitations the way mm-hmm. that I did when I was a teenager and get in over my head. And so I want to kind of build up slow. I want to keep a smaller volume of animals, but I want to keep them in more, interesting and elaborate displays. And I want part of the interest of keeping them to be maintaining the display. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of, that's kind of how it all has coalesced and tied in for me there. Yeah, no, I, I can,
0: I can speak to that as well. I just like right there is my mm-hmm. wall of lamp <laughs> which, uh, obviously if you're listening to this, you can't see it, but, um, I, kind of made a decision, I've talked about this before, where when I got back into this, kind of like you, um, I knew I wanted to do something with colubrids, and I did the old world rat snakes, and they just didn't work out. And I thought about the climate of my house, the, the you know the, the humidity levels, I've got this kind of weird humidity thing going on, and I just was like, you know, it's like always like Georgia here, and I thought, oh, my propel to <laughs> lives in Georgia, Let's just collect those and so that's literally like bing bang boom that was the thought process but I I, I have what's really interesting about my setup here at, at my home is that I've got this bank of naturalistic cages and then I also have out of you know the other part of my collection is out of my garage and it's a whole bunch of um, freedom breeder racks and and you know bigger rack tubs, because I I will mm-hmm. never put something in a small tub. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, they have space, but they don't have all the bells and whistles that these guys do. And mm-hmm. I, too, like you, absolutely, 100%, natural history is the driver of all things in my life professionally. Part of the reason why I jumped to crayfish from herpetology is back in the early 2000s, natural history was not the foci of the science at that time. Ironically, now it is, because we can mm-hmm or it, it's come back as a foci because we have things like trail cameras and we have drones. We have all these ways to observe reptiles we didn't have before. Where we can actually see novel behaviors, but early two thousands, if you were in graduate school, you were going to contemplate a PhD. You were going to do a um, PhD with phylogenetics and it was going to involve going out, catching snakes, cl- cutting their tail tips or ventral scales off, and then maybe throwing them in a jar, going to a museum, which I wasn't really into. Uh, but I wanted to do like, I wanted to study natural history. Having these enclosures in my house absolutely scratches that niche. And Mm -hmm. what's really cool is I've set these enclosures up the exact way that I saw the habitat for Florida Kingsnakes when I was down around Belle Glade and in the cane fields, which is my favorite look. And obviously that's not a natural habitat, which also to me Mm -hmm. makes it a little bit more interesting because they are so successful there. But, uh, I, I took a video of it and I, put it up on social media today like i looked in my hernando florida king enclosure and i purposely have it set up where there's um a bunch of oak grass i let it grow up and then die and then fall over and the damn snakes are literally doing the cryptic basking coil just underneath the grass but above the substrate the exact way Mm -hmm. they do it out in nature and and like Walking into my house in West Virginia and seeing what's going on potentially in Belle Glade, Florida, like, I hear a lot of people say, like, it's not the superior way of keeping. I'm not saying that. But I will say that it's more interesting. I do not get that experience Mm -hmm. when I pull the tub open. It doesn't happen, you know? Um, And so, given that I love and I geek about natural history, that's why keeping these things that way is is to me far more rewarding um, Mm -hmm. because I get to actually like see the snakes. And at some point we have to acknowledge that welfare is important. Um, Yeah. People get real apologetic when they talk about the way they keep. And I just feel like that way of keeping for the animals, they are able to exhibit behaviors. They don't, they won't be able to exhibit because the way, the reason why the snake was doing what it was doing wasn't necessarily because there was grass. Was doing it because there's a light bulb in there that's giving it a little bit of UVA radiation, so that it can actually like gain the heat and then move off to the other part of the enclosure. But you know, having all of that in the box that you're keeping the snake in, it it's just kind of cool. So you know, my enclosure here has some mulch, some orchid bark. bark sorry, the oat grass, mm-hmm. some um, honeysuckle branches from an invasive honeysuckle that's all over Appalachia that I like decimate in my yard and and let them dry out and then they go in the animal cages and then some dare i say it at the risk of you know people judging me some fake plants for the simple fact that the damn king snakes crap on everything and i'm like i need to be able to wash these things uh but like that's my setup that is not what you have though (laughs) you have the the guyana shield is sitting you know in Mm -hmm. california so talk a little bit about what exactly is in this Vivarium, mm-hmm. you know, as far as the the, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, you were attempting a biotope. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. So yeah, explain what a biotope is, and and yeah. and just kind of talk about your your setup with the yeah. plants and the lights and the rain and the everything.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. So yeah, biotope. Um, it's funny. It's like I I feel a little cagey about these terms, like the biotope mm-hmm. term and the bioactive term. Yeah. You know, I feel cagey I, about them
0: too, by the way, as I ask yeah, you to define I them. I
1: totally – I know, I know. I know we're in the same boat there. But um, Because I just don't want to be like one of those guys that's like, this is what it is, you know. But um, yeah,
0: Well, you didn't do it yeah, because it's called a biotope, but it just happens no. to be called a biotope and you did it. So Exactly. And I actually didn't –
1: I didn't mm-hmm. even know what a biotope – the biotope was a term when I was doing this mm-hmm. until you know after yeah. I'd done it. But, um, but a biotope essentially is um, – it's essentially building a vivarium where everything in it is seeking to be from, um, a certain region or locality, yeah. um, including the, the living plants. Um, you know, some people would go so far as like trying to replicate the soil texture and composition, mm-hmm. which is a little bit further than I would go, um, personally, but, um, yeah, so this this big vivarium I mean actually honestly all the vivariums that I have set up are technically biotopes by that nice. by that um definition. Um everything has plants native to where the species is from and you know, I, I yeah, again, like I I as a natural history geek, part of the, the joy mm-hmm. of keeping things for me is like looking into the vivarium and seeing a little a little piece of that micro habitat um mm-hmm. that, that that species occupies and trying to replicate that as closely as i can um so in the case of this pelotes vivarium i've got over a dozen a dozen species of live plants in there um some really big aeroids and some smaller little you know vines and um trailing plants mm-hmm. and um some bromeliads mounted in the branches um there's a pretty big water bowl i don't have like a running water feature but i have a huge water bowl that um the snakes can actually fit in if they want to they don't really do that um very often occasionally the big male will will soak but um And then all these you know rock ledges um you know and and a network of manzanita branches for them to access just about every square inch of that vivarium um yeah and then it's in terms of lighting i've got um i use um arcadia led bars to light it which they produce a ton of light um which which allows for that plant growth um especially with such a tall vivarium you need lights that can kind of penetrate um a pretty good distance and still put out pretty high par to actually get good plant growth um and then there's also arcadia um um, t5s um uvb um on the snakes in there the six percent bulbs which are the, the i guess the forest rainforest bulbs and then um there are three separate, um, basking kind of areas in the vivarium. I wanted the snakes to be able to bask independently. Um, if they wanted to actually have space from each other, I didn't want them to be competing for that resource. And so, um, each of those basking areas has a large halogen alongside a DP projector, um, that heats the vivarium. And, um, it's interesting, sometimes I will see the snakes perfectly <laughs> perfectly spaced out, basking, um, using those three separate areas, and sometimes I'll see them all coil up together in the same spot. Um, it seems like, you know, just depending on their mood to some extent. Um, and then, yeah, it's also hooked up to a Mist King misting system that mists everything in that room. So I, I basically have a, what I call it, my tropical room, and mm-hmm. in that room I have species that are only native to the Guyana Shield region, um, which basically allows me to kind of set basic ambient parameters for the room itself and then to supplementally add heat, um, you know, basking opportunities and stuff like that. But um yeah, the misking runs um a few times a day. Um and I do I do replicate the wet and dry season um cool. using the misking. Um, throughout the year, I have I have basically a a 52 week calendar that I follow. Um, oh, cool. That that tells me okay, on this day I'm adjusting my lights. You know, for my temperate species, I'll adjust my lights on my thermostat. Um, so it's a nice gradual change. Um, and with the the tropical species, I adjust it for primarily the humidity and um in the misting and um i also pair that cycling alongside it i do food cycling that aligns Mm -hmm. with that um so i offer a lot more food um or i offer more frequent small prey items during the so-called wet season Mm -hmm. and less frequent um larger prey items during the dry season And I think that that's been part of what um, has been encouraging the females to cycle um, so consistently. Um, Even if I haven't been getting the, the, the male that the right, the triggers right for the male to breed. um, I have had really consistent um, results with the female cycling and um, producing eggs.
0: Gotcha. Um, So feeding wise, you, you mentioned the food cycling, which is really cool. I, I gave that a go this um, this year, more so than I normally do. So I'm kind of cu- curious to see if it works for me. And yeah. I've always done that with the Hydra because the false water cobras, because I, I know the parts of South America, they actually have a pretty massive range across South America. Uh, mm-hmm. But they a lot of the places that they occur and a lot of the places that we think our animals and herpetoculture came out of absolutely have a they don't necessarily have winter summer but rather dry wet and then there's you know temperature fluctuations associated with that uh but with the food cycling what what are you feeding them exactly is are is Mm -hmm. you know with, with these animals i know they're arboreal but i also know that they're found on the ground a little bit more often than people realize if i'm not mistaken yeah yeah so what's the food like for them is it Birds, mammals, fish, all the above, none of the above? Like, what do you, what Mm -hmm. is your approach to diet?
1: So, I offer mine, um, birds and rodents, um, pretty much exclusively. I have tried to offer, um, lizards and reptilinks, like frog reptilinks and lizard reptilinks in the past with no interest. In fact, I've actually had lizards in with those snakes in the same biotope. I've had, um, turnip tailed geckos um huh. near to that area and also um urinoscodons, superciliosis, the mopat iguanas uh-huh. um in there as well. And the snakes have had no interest in them whatsoever. Um huh. not tried to eat them. And um the interesting thing about sulfurius is they um they have interesting ontogeny. So they, they go through an ontogenetic color change. Um but they uh-huh. also go through they they've developed um two different kind of um venom, two different toxins essentially over time. Yeah. And um you have toxin, which is um which is very impactful for um lizards and for birds. And then you have uh-huh. solmotoxin, which is very impactful for rodents. And um that there's some some people suggest that this is because when they're smaller um they may accept um a diet of um lizards more frequently Very when they're cool. young and then as they get larger um they will consume more rodents and in my experience um they i, I believe them to be nest raiders primarily honestly because okay. um just because of the way that they um, the way they eat is unusual. It's <laughs> if anyone's ever seen a below eat, it's very fast. Um, yeah. they, they basically <laughs> seize the prey and gobble it down as fast as they possibly can. And if that's a live prey item, they're not bothering to kill it first. Like it goes, it goes down kicking and screaming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, uh, uh-huh. I've seen, you know, sulfurius eat a live mouse or a live rat and you can see the rat struggling as it's going <laughs> down and um you know i think that for me that just does not make sense unless you're eating small defenseless prey <laughs> mm-hmm. you know as they would be if they're nestrating and um i've actually so that was actually kind of how i was able to get my um my two females feeding consistently because when they first came in um they were very good feeders at first and then they kind of became picky and it was really hard to get them to eat consistently for like a couple years, honestly, of just like working at trying to get them to like actually get consistent on their feeding schedule and they would eat, but it wasn't like, wasn't the way I wanted it to be. And, Mm -hmm. um, so what I started doing was taking these, um, these large seed pods and putting them in the branches of the vivarium, and putting in um, pigeon eggs or dove huh. eggs, um, and I found that they would they would seek those out, find them, and just devour them. And um, then I would add in other prey items in there. I would add in a quail chick, add in a chick, um, you know, chicken chick, and they would eat those as well with the eggs. And then, um the trick then get them eating rodents as well. Um, this is kind of a funny, this is one of those things that we do as a herpetoculturist where you're like doing it and you're like, what the hell am I doing right now? But, um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) but I Mm -hmm. ordered some, um, collagen casing like for, for sausage making Uh Uh and I cut it into little strips, like little strings basically. And I tied a rat to a chick and put it in these seed pods and they would get the chick and then keep going and eat the rat. And now, at this point, they'll eat anything that I put in those pods. Or they'll even tong feed now on anything. That's cool. Um, but... You know, in their natural history, as far as we know, um, they're primarily bird and, bird and mammal eaters. You know, I'm sure in, in South America, they're going to be getting much higher mammal diversity. They're going to be getting, I'm sure they're getting all kinds of like opossums and stuff like that. Little arboreal marsupials and um, but um, they do they do really well on a diet of rodents and, and avian prey. I think that um, like any pretty much any snake, they are you can totally overfeed them. And I think a lot of people do tend to overfeed sploties. Um, it's easy to do. You, you, they don't, they don't need to eat huge prey items. Um, like for my adults, you know, like I said earlier, my male is, he's close to 11 feet long at this point and he's over 10 pounds. And, um, I don't give him anything larger than a medium rat. And, you know, he could eat, a large rat no problem or an extra large rat but um i think that it's just not it's just not he doesn't need it you know he he he'll take one medium rat and maybe a chick uh you know a chicken chick or a or a couple Mm -hmm. chicken chicks at a feeding and that's a typical feeding for for me with them um and that seems to keep them in a nice lean body condition, um, lean and healthy, you know, not, they're not, um, you're not seeing a ton of scale separation in the posterior half of the snake, um, which for me is usually an indicator that they're, they're being fed too much. Um, so that's what I've been doing. It seems to be working pretty well for me. Um, I think that, you know, you could, you could feed them an exclusively rodent diet, and you'd be fine, um, I think, but you'd probably um, you' probably have to be careful more careful about moderating um, that kind of diet if you're not if you're not also having a pretty substantial mm-hmm. avian component because I think that it's just yeah it's just a lot of fat yeah for them
0: um, Well, that's cool. Yeah the, yeah the things that we do that we don't realize we're ever going to do then <laughs> uh, they're done that.
1: Um, Oh, I know, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I was, uh, I think I mentioned this before, but uh, my grad student, pay. we were at the OCIC, and she's, or sorry, they are making sausages for indigo snakes. And here I am, I'm getting paid to go to Florida to take a meat cleaver and hack up frozen rats into cubes so we can put them in a sausage grinder and make rodent sausages. And, and, you know. And it was just a totally normal day. <laughs>
1: like oh, yeah. that's just what we're going to do.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is what we
1: do in the name of herbiculture, you know.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um and that was also the day that I found out that I have a sick twisted fascination with taking meat cleavers and doing perfect cross sections of rodents and then, like looking <laughs> at them like a biology textbook. So yeah, I learned something about myself that day and I don't know if it was good. Anyway, um,
1: <laughs> No judgment here. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, no ju- thank you. Uh I have a a question though about the the venom or sorry duvernois secretions is technically i guess yeah. what you would call that but we yeah. can go with venom uh yeah i was shocked the first time i learned that Spilotes were rear fanged and they actually had you know biochemically act- active peptides in there yeah. um do, does uh spiloides pilatus have that as well
1: that's a question that i that i really want to know um as mm-hmm. far as i know it doesn't doesn't okay
0: that. that's what i thought
1: which is weird <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah <laughs> um, no i don't i don't know of how uh, too many genre that have you know species that you know one is can you think of any off the top of your head that you know one no. is venomous and one isn't yeah
0: i mean there's there's some that have some medically not not medically but they cr- produce peptides yeah. some of the nerodia i know have more peptide activity going on back there than mm-hmm. others i don't want people thinking nerodia are venomous but like right. um, common water snake, northern water snake, whatever you want to call it, uh, it has heparin-like components in its salivary glands. That when you, mm-hmm. That's why when you get bit by them, you just kind of seep and ooze mm-hmm. blood because okay. your platelets are basically just for pretty then. Um, and I know like other species of Neurodia don't really have that. So like there, there's kind of that bit. But the thing though is like all the road kind of have the same dentition but with sploities you it's, it's odd that one has an enlarged you know tooth yeah. or an epistoglyphous condition and the other one apparently may or may not have that so yeah no yeah super cool have you ever been um nipped <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like do you did you have a reaction
1: yeah so um i have one story about that um I've been tagged a few times by them. I'm I, I, I don't really handle them very much, particularly the wild caught ones. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't like to mess with the male is very mellow. Like I said, I can totally take him out. Um, but he doesn't like it. You know, he, he, he resists. And so I don't do it really. Um, yeah, but I have been tagged by the females a couple times. And, um, one of the times in particular was interesting in that, um, she got me on, um, the the digit of my thumb here and immediately I felt some itchiness, Uh um, from the bite. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And, um, this, I was like, this might get a little interesting here. And so I kind of was just like keeping an eye on it. And it, it did swell a little bit. It wasn't like crazy swelling, but it was definitely noticeably swollen in comparison to my other thumb. um, And then that subsided after a few hours. Um, The interesting thing, though, that happened was that I had joint pain in the joint upstream of that um, in my thumb for, like, two weeks. Oh. Um, Like, just, just like, a little bit of, like, an ache in that joint. And that, I mean, it was one of those things where it was kind of like, is this even related? You know, like, I don't really know, (laughs) but... Uh-huh. It happened right uh-huh. after I got bitten by the snake and then it just <laughs> went away by itself after a couple of weeks or whatever. And it was just this very uh-huh. mild, just like, oh, that's kind of weird. There's like a little bit of stiffness and pain in that joint. Um, That's kind of the only thing I've had. I've never, you know, I've never let one just chew on me. Um, yeah. And it would be very unpleasant, I'm sure. Um, but there's some interesting papers. There's a couple papers actually now um, from Steve McAsee I think, um, University of Northern Colorado has been Mm -hmm. doing some really interesting work on them. Um, I've got links to those in my, in my article on Spolodes on my, on my website for anyone who might be interested in checking those out. It's really interesting stuff. Um, I remember like there's some interesting, like, like there's this interesting thing I think about like, um, the 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 impact of their venom on like a hemidactylus gecko was like yeah. really extreme <laughs> or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like, well, they don't live with hemidactylus, <laughs> So yeah, exactly. like that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, Fair. anyway, they're, they're, it's, it's one of those, it's a species that I, you know, I don't, I don't treat them the same way I would treat necessarily like, um, a, a thrasops, you know, or, uh, yeah, <laughs> you uh-huh. know, or something like that. But, um, but I definitely I have respect for them. I don't I don't um I don't just let them bite me. I avoid it as much as I can. Yeah, that's
0: probably fair. I, I don't. <laughs> I, I I learned a lot about Duvernoy's glands and mm-hmm. rear fang delivery systems and and like basically a lot of these animals. They're the the peptides they're making. If they were more efficient in the delivery of yeah. of the toxins. We would be treating them like freaking rattlesnakes and mambas, and, you know, but the oh, yeah. fact is they just have, you know, this is a fun show. The derpiest way of delivering venom ever, it's it's kind of like throwing it at the prey item in a manner of speaking because it's not yeah. contained in a tube. It's kind of right. oozing out of this Duvernoy's gland into a groove, and they have to chew it in. Uh, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, and then all the, the extra fluids in their mouth are diluting it, and so...
1: Unsophisticated,
0: no. yeah, exactly. <laughs> very, very, very unsophisticated, and then others are sophisticated, but in the case of these guys, unsophisticated. So, yeah. no, that's super cool. So, I know one of the other things I want to talk about. i kind of yeah. on this, you know, line of line of thought before we get to your your babies and mm-hmm. and all that. Um, I, I know I've uh, you, you've you've mentioned. I want to kind of go back to the naturalist perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I'm a I'm a weird age to be a naturalist because I'm in my early forties. So, you know, I was raised on field guides, books, articles, and then these these computer things showed up, and then the internet came along, and now I have a freaking computer in my pocket, um, uh, with my cell phone. But I, you'd think I'd be all over all the natural history apps, and it's not that I'm averse to them. It's just so foreign to me to, like, A, have somebody actually care about what the hell I'm seeing outside that's nerdy as hell. That's a whole new concept. But um, also, like, sharing it and and communicating. And, of course, I'm kind of leading into INAT. I I wrote that paper where I talked about how if you're going to keep things with a natural history basis – there's all these tools we have, and ironically – and one of those things I said was INAT, and you can go on, and you can look at observations and blah, 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 and then I find myself not doing it, even though I told the whole yeah. world to do it. But I know that you do it, and, and I've, yeah. I've, I've been the, listening to uh, your podcast, which is like – I already told you this. I'm going to say it one more time. Um, Project Herpeticulture. <laughs> it's Roy and Phil's podcast. Absolutely fantastic. So, yes, that is a plug. Go listen to it. It's in the Animals at Home Network. Please don't hurt me, Eric. So <laughs> we're plugging the other network. But uh, anyway, it's a good one. It's a solid, solid podcast. And you've mentioned how you've seen things in your enclosures yeah. that were then validated on INAT. So talk a yeah. little bit about just what does INAT have a role in herpetoculture? And it obviously does. But what yes, do you think definitely. it is? Uh, And in case you don't know what iNat is, uh, the younger people are like, you have to explain this. The older people are like, Mm -hmm. what the hell is that? That might be listening to this. iNaturalist is iNat, and it's a uh, wonderful – started off as a citizen scientist platform where basically everybody walks around with a camera in their pocket now. So you can go. You take your picture. You have an iNat account just like you have an Instagram account or a Facebook account, only it's very different in that you can upload observations. And then there's this iNat community of experts I'm one of the experts for crayfish, obviously, that then kind of come by and validate and ID the uh, the animals for you, and it creates this kind of digital community of naturalists, which if you really think about what I just said, there's a little bit of an oxymoron there because you know naturalists want to be out mm-hmm. away from the digital world, yet this community is entirely digital. like that whole that whole nexus world interesting to me um and it can be used in a herpetological herpetocultural way so i want you to if if you don't mind just kind of discuss how you've used it especially with the sulfuris and your large enclosure and like behaviors that you've kind of seen them do and validate with Inat. just kind of just word vomit on that for a little bit
1: of course yeah i can go for that (laughs) so Yeah, I mean, iNaturalist. I I love that platform. I think it's a really useful <laughs> tool. Um, you can actually um, one thing that I highly recommend folks do um, as her, for herpetoculture is you can actually subscribe to a taxon on iNaturalist. And so what the, what you do is you can subscribe, say to you know and then every time uh, a new observation of Spilodytes sulfurius gets p- posted to iNaturalist, you get a notification on your dashboard that says there's a, here's a new observation. And so I've just subscribed to all the species that I work with <laughs> and a bunch of other stuff that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just, it's kind of like my morning coffee routine. A lot of the time i sit there drinking my coffee and scrolling through the iNaturalist observations and just seeing what's there. And, um, it's also something I do when I'm like, uh, beginning to work with a new species or I'm in research about a species I go through and I just look at all the observations on iNaturalist. Um, You can kind of select a couple of different um, viewing formats of the actual observations themselves. One's like a grid that's just all the pictures essentially. And um, you can interpret a lot from that. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course you can misinterpret a lot from it as well. (laughs) Um, So there's there's always that danger. But... um, I think that if you're, you know, using some discernment, you can interpret a lot of valuable stuff to be applied to herpetoculture. Um so like like one example, this is not the spelotes, but I'll get to that in a second, um is I keep um a genus of lizards, um, polychris, which is another species mm-hmm. native to the Guyana Shield, and um I observed multiple times on iNaturalist naturalist these lizards eating stick insects. Um Huge stickin. Uh-huh. Um, I <laughs> tried feeding them stick insects and got the most extreme feeding response I've ever had from them, um, which is a really cool thing to 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 <laughs> put together. Cool. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. With the Spilotes, you know, I used iNaturalist to inform which plant species I was um, selecting for the vivarium. So you can you can go in, in the search format on iNaturalist, you can. Um, narrow it down to a certain region and then type in say a certain um family of plants so you can type in aeroids of the guyana shields or aeroids in Suriname, mm-hmm. and you'll just get observations of all the aeroid species in Suriname. so then you've got a plant list okay which species of these can i even obtain <laughs> you know in in horticulture you know and buy. <laughs> um yeah and so I did that with mm-hmm. a bunch of different families of plants for the vivarium, and um, interestingly, one of them was um, bromeliads. So when I was first getting the spolodes, the nice. I had them in a naturalistic vivarium. It had live plants. Um, most of them were neotropical, but they weren't specifically from the Guyana Shield. And then um, when I was moving them into this big vivarium, I had the intention of really doing only things native to the Giana shield. And so I ordered a bunch of plants and among those was, um, a large bromeliad that I was mounting in all of the, um, branches. And interesting about bromeliads is they have, um, what's called an axle, which is essentially, um, it's like the, the center of the plant forms a reservoir and, um, you know, famously like dart frogs will raise their tadpoles in this reservoir of water. Um, up in the trees and um you know after introducing the snakes into this new vivarium with the bromeliads i noticed that both of the wild-caught female sulfurius were going around to all the bromeliads and drinking water out of them <laughs> like they were like oh, oh that's, that's cool. what these are for <laughs> i remember these you know like that was the that was my <laughs> interpretation you know on some level mm-hmm that was the vibe I was getting from what they were doing. I was like, Oh, they know, they know what they're doing. They're looking Mm -hmm. for water out of these things and they're, they are drinking regularly out of Mm -hmm. them. And so, um, it was just like such an amazing observation at the time that it happened. You know, it was one of those moments like you described, you know, seeing your, your Florida King cryptic basking under the oak grass, you know, for me it was like the same, the same kind of thing. Just Mm -hmm. like, hell yes that is why i do this you know that is the good stuff um yeah you know seeing Mm -hmm. that kind of behavior and it also kind of like solved a problem for me in some ways and that like where are these like large arboreal snakes getting their water you know i mean obviously they're they're drinking it from dew and rain Mm -hmm. collecting on their scales collecting on leaves but like you know that's not happening all the time necessarily and um and so it kind of makes some sense that you know these large arboreal snakes would be seeking water out of these yeah. these things that actually have a reservoir that would have water long after it's dried up um, in other places. And um, the really cool thing about this story is that just in the last couple months, this observation that I had in my vivariums was validated on iNaturalist because someone had gone and ID'd an old observation of what turned out to be a Spolitis sulfurous drinking out of a bromeliad. (laughs) Um, and I was like, yes, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and and it was also, it was also interesting because, (laughs) because, um, you know, I think that if I had seen that observation, I wouldn't necessarily have known what it was doing. You know, it's like, it's just this picture of a snake with its head down in a bromeliad. And I probably would have been like, Oh, maybe it's looking for frogs or like maybe it's, foraging in some way you know i wouldn't have (laughs) necessarily known oh it's it's drinking that's what it's doing and um sure enough it's there it was i was like that is that's that's what it's all about right there so
0: yeah no little little moments like that are are are, they they make it Mm -hmm. all worth worthwhile i've had a million of those kind of things outside of herpetoculture just you know doing the the Field-based work that I do, and mm-hmm. in herpetoculture, like I said, uh, I'm nerding out. Nine, you know, most people would be like, "It's coiled yeah. underneath a plant," but like if you if you do the the due diligence and you read and you observe and you're basically engaged, you realize that there's so much mm-hmm. more nuance to everything that they're doing mm, yeah. that than we realize. So, yeah, no. And then when you get that replicated in in your enclosure, that's just yeah. like like you said, that's the good stuff. That's literally what. Yeah, another you no. Know, why do what exactly? Do. And why yeah, you do what you, one of you do? Of my favorites so with
1: that was I think I, I think I sent this to you a long time ago. But there's this this research paper that I um, that I've read a few times in kind of studying up on the the xenodon, the tricolors, um, and it's like annual activity patterns of snakes in the Cordoba region of Argentina. And it has, like, you know, graphs charting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know the paper. Um, I know that paper. And it shows, mm-hmm. you know, the spike in activity, mm-hmm. you know, and observations that you see of these snakes. And, of course, it's right when amphibians are breeding and there's lots of rain and water. Um, but also, if you go on yep. iNaturalist, you can actually look at um, – there's you can look at annual trends of the observations. And the observations on iNaturalist perfectly matches the exact same spike in the graph. It's like – it's just like it's like, yeah, of course. You know, obviously it's so obvious, you know, that yeah, that's when you're gonna see these snakes that are fossorial, you know. <laughs> it's when there's tons of food and it's nice and wet, they're out, uh-huh. it's it's a good time to be out in the open. Yep. Um if you're a fossorial snake in the Chaco. But um yeah, I just I just love that kind of stuff. It's so fun. Yeah, no, totally.
0: Okay. So mm-hmm. Back to the keeping for for keeping's sake. Yeah. Um, now you have all these little ones. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, do you have a plan of attack? I mean, and since since you bred the the sulfuris back in the day, oh, yeah. I know that other people have bred them. So has like the husbandry of neo, neonate husbandry had come along since what fifteen sixteen? However many years ago it was that you yeah in, you, you know got it's the interesting that dropped so the
1: eggs. i um that was like a big deal when i when i got those eggs um was like how are the neonates going to be is this going to be a total nightmare um and i figured out a kind of a trick to get them to feed that um is the trick that everyone uses mm-hmm. now um you know and I, I figured it out then just tinkering on my own you know Um, and I'm sure that that's how Jason hood and others figured it out too, is trying, trying stuff and seeing what sticks. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but essentially if you, um, Mm -hmm. you can kind of get them to start feeding by tease feeding essentially. And, um, that usually looks like, you know, grasping a baby in, in the hand, you know, so there's about six inches of snake out enough for them to kind of, um, you know, coil and form a, form a striking coil and you kind of wiggle a pinky on tongs in front of them until yeah. they bite. And then usually they bite it and then they maybe a couple times, they'll bite and they'll let go and then eventually they'll bite it and they'll just grab it and then eat it. And and just, that, that's all it takes. It's really. They're really not that hard to get going, um, using that technique. And especially, um, once they've done that a few times, it's no longer necessary to, to like restrain them to do it. They'll just, they'll, they recognize it's food yeah. and they'll grab it off the tongs in my experience. Um, So that's what I'm going to be doing this time. You know, right now the babies are there. None of them have had their first shed yet. They're all (laughs) just now beginning to go into the blue, um, Mm -hmm. for that first shed. Um, but as soon as they've done that, I'll I'll start feeding trials with that technique. Um, I know that, um, Jason has also had some success using quail, like day old quail for some of the stubborn feeders, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and, yeah. In terms of how I'm going to set up the babies, how I, how I, um, how I do the rearing of pretty much everything here is pretty much the same as the adults. They go into pretty complex setups. You can kind of see for those that have the, you can see, um, the video behind me and that those are nursery setups mm-hmm. behind me with the lights just turned off there. And, um, those, oh, those okay, little gotcha. dark blobs, cool. you can see those are baby below coiled up in the branches. Um, <laughs> yeah and so um that's really cool yeah they they have little how hal- nano halogen for heat um overhead heat and they have um led and t5 lighting over the top they'll get they get some uv exposure um and yeah that's just that's just like how i like to raise stuff here you know as much as i can of course there's you know practical limitations mm-hmm. again you know you can't it's not like I can put every single one into like a, you know, 24 inch cube or whatever, but, um, yeah. there's some, there's some enclosure manufacturers that have made some nice, um, like Tamura designs is one that I really like for nursery enclosures. I mean, basically makes these like condo setups, you know? So it's like multiple enclosures in one kind of PVC display. And mm-hmm. um, that's how I raised my babies here. Both the, the and also like the lizards, the polychris and everything. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to get into raising these ones up and see, I mean, the ones that I raised as a teenager, it was, they were easy. I had no trouble with them at all. Um, while I had them, I think I lost one, um, one of the eight that I hatched, I think, um, kind of died unexpectedly as I recall, um, but it had been eating and everything just fine. I don't know, maybe they got a bad mouse or something, but, um, it was like a pretty, just out of the blue kind of thing. But um, other than that, I remember them being really sturdy. And and, I mean, that's just true in general. I think of captive born Spelotes is is that they're, they're really not that hard as captive born. Um, I, you know, people sometimes reach out to me and are like, what do you do with your wild caught? What's your protocol? And I'm, I'm totally willing and happy to share, you know, and, and do generously, but I'm also like, cool if you're thinking about getting one, get one from Jason hood, <laughs> like, get a captive bred one. It's you're going to save yourself a lot of headaches yeah. doing that. They're just so much more enjoyable to work with when they are actually, they want to feed <laughs> and they're not terrified of you. Um, and I think that they also are more, um, amenable to being kept in kind of simpler setups that way. um, and smaller uh, setups. I think that, um, you know, when I had my adults now, at one point I had them in smaller setups, like four by two by three, um, size setups. And, um, I never saw them. The females would hide all the time. And now that they're in the eight by three by six, they are out constantly. Like they, it's rare that they're hiding. They're, they're just, they're displaced. Next. Really? They're just out basking. And I think a lot of that is just because they have more space. They feel like they can move away. Um, And part of that is having a full extra foot of depth. Um, You know, it's going from a two foot depth to a three foot depth in the vivarium. And for a species that whose primary means of escape is flight. I think that really matters because they can sense like, I've got some space (laughs) to move here. Whereas, you know, in a two foot vivarium, if I'm standing right in front of the vivarium, they, they pretty much feel cornered and um yeah so i think that you know again if you are going to go with wild caught i think that they actually do better in larger more complex setups or in very simple like opaque tub style setups because i think in that environment you're basically creating a sensory deprivation chamber you know um you're you're reducing stimulus so much that they can kind of settle out a little bit but the kind of in-between place of um, keeping them in kind of like a a big-ish vivarium doesn't usually work super well with with wild caught in my experience.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. So, wit, wit, (laughs) how do I ask this question? I I don't like the idea of beginner snakes. That's never been... Something that I've I've kind of gotten into, but at the same time, eleven feet of snarky bluebird yeah. is a lot. So it is. I, before the show started, you'd mentioned that you mm-hmm. you've kept Spelody's Pilatus. Do you think that Pilatus is like work with those, then go to the big boy, or do you think that
1: I, th- I think I they're go? similar um i think they're really similar pull the trigger and go i would say um i think that wild caught pilates are probably a bit easier but in in terms of the captive born i think you could go right for sulfurious, i think um yeah pilates are a bit smaller typically although the south you know the guy on the shield pilates that come in get really big too you know they get up 10 feet um the northern you know localities of pilatus which are probably not even pilatus they're probably they're 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 a separate species um i'm sure it just needs to be revised um they're 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 a bit smaller um but still you know an eight or nine foot snake you can expect um from those um although the difference i mean i'm i'm kind of shocked at the difference between like a nine foot sulfurious and an 11 foot sulfurious, you know in terms of like like it's a big difference like <laughs> in, in, in weight especially like the like the the male that mm-hmm. i have is she's just he's massive like I've, I've never seen another kluber like him other than like you know some of the really big dry mark on and a really big hydrodynasties those are kind of the only things that have a similar affect of just like holy crap that is a that's a serious colubrid, you know, Tyus carinatus is another one. Yeah. Um, but there are very few that, that have that kind of presentation. Um, and yeah, you know, I think I agree with you around the whole idea of beginner snakes. It's like, it's definitely a species that, um, I mean, anyone, anyone, any, anyone dedicated can work with them. Right. But but part of the dedication to them is is space and that's a huge one that's a huge limiting factor when working with a species like this is just just how big they are and how active they are Gotcha
0: Okay so I guess the the Yeah I have a couple more questions but we were going to talk about yeah. Freenex and and Pilatus, uh, but we're kind of running out of time here, and I feel like it's just worth having you come back on a couple more times, because uh, it's been nice having somebody on that's um, both a naturalistic keeper Mm -hmm. and interested in American snakes. (laughs) Like, uh, Matt Matt has a lot of friends with his old worlds, and I love you guys that have come on, but it's just been kind of refreshing to have uh, an episode of... of, uh, south american origin i think this might be the first one where, where that's kind of the fo- so, focus yeah. of the group that we're talking about uh, but w- i got a way ahead of myself and just kind of reared into it yeah. so we've got two questions mm-hmm. we ask all our guests these so we're okay. going to kind of do a hard 90 but um mm-hmm. why colubrids what is it like what what about colubrids specifically mm-hmm. drew you in Versus a ball python, yeah, yeah. ball or not ball python, but pythons. Yeah. I mean, boas are all over the Americas. Yeah. You've got plenty epicrates and, and boa and uh, eunuchtes and all those guys. But but why did we? Why is Roy not keeping rainbow boas? And he's keeping giant. Why yeah. aren't you keeping eleven foot yellow anacondas? And instead you're keeping yeah. I mean, eleven foot. I'm sure part of it is just like
1: <laughs> superficial. Just like I like the way they look. You know, I really love the body plan of spilotes. They're mm-hmm. just really beautiful snakes. They've got really interesting features. They've got an interesting threat display. Um, but uh, but a lot of it, I think, you know, I have kept I kept um corallis in the past. You know, I had um Amazon tree at one point, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I've kept a lot of other stuff, but um, colubrids are just you know colubrids, it's so That's that's what really interests me. Um. Yeah. Something about just their behaviors. Um, I think also there's something about just the diversity expressed within those families. You know, there's just so much going on. So many different look, different body plans and different um, niches that they're fulfilling and occupying, Um, you know, and like really – there, there are some colubrids that that don't do it for me. You know, I mean, I I I, lo- I love all snakes, but there's there's mm-hmm. plenty of stuff that I wouldn't be really be interested in keeping. Um, and there's something about the spilotes, though. I think that um, one of the things I really like about them is is they're so polymorphic. Um, there's so many different color variations and pattern mm-hmm. variations in spilotes that. Um, it's really hard to even pin down, you know, and, and there's this kind of fun thing that happens with the ontogenetic color change where it's like all the babies pretty much look the same and there's black and gray snakes. You do not know what they're going to look like really, you know. Yeah. You, the parents give some indication of how they'll probably look, but, um, you know, like my male is a good example. Like I don't know what his, the sire looked like for him, you know, it was a wild snake, but um, the dam that produced him was – green with a yellow head and a black tail and um this male that i have he's like jet inky black with like bright highlighter yellow markings you know it doesn't don't look alike at all um so it's really interesting to see that kind of (laughs) variation emerge um in a species and i think that's like part of what i like about them um but yeah i think also just like colubrid's they they seem a little bit more dynamic and active, um, I think, than a lot of the boas and pythons. Um, they express mm-hmm. more kind of like um, foraging behaviors, more kind of active moving behaviors, and stuff like that. That that I I just like as a behavior nerd, natural history nerd, that stuff gets me stoked to see. You know, I I, I like. To see the animal moving around and um, and expressing its you know its natural um, repertoire, <laughs> you know, um, and I also you know there's something about like <laughs> you know looking at a nice you know chondro or or emerald treebo, but it you know it, it's most of the time that you're awake, it's just sitting on a branch and um, it's amazing it looks really good sitting there on that branch don't get me wrong i like it but uh-huh. but it um it doesn't interest me in the same way uh-huh. um i really like to see them actively foraging like it's so cool to watch this below moving through and you know a, a putting a putting fresh eggs in one of their little seed pods and then you know one of them smells it and then uh-huh. they start cruising you know and they're looking and they find them and you devour the eggs you know that kind of thing is just really interesting to watch for me and I think a big part of what draws me to colubrids is just they're, they're more naturally active, usually.
0: Yeah. Cool. All right, and then... Okay. Okay, last question before we wrap it up. The future of herpeticulture is it bright? Is it not bright? From a colubrid-centric point of view... Um, what do you think the 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 next five, mm-hmm. ten years is gonna look like?, uh, do you think that this naturalistic keeping a lot of people have, have noticed and have t- kind of discussed the fact that just five years ago there was there was kind of an avert mm-hmm. not I don't want to say an aversion, that's not the right word, but there was at least in mainstream herpetoculture, there was a resistance if there was if there was anything too naturalistic, bioactive, mm-hmm. it was kind of like poo-pooed. And now it in certain circles, mm-hmm. in other circles, it was of course openly embraced. So I don't want to give the impression like it, it wasn't, but it does seem like in Snake Land, where we have a tendency to really kind of mm-hmm. here in the Americas in mm-hmm. America North the United States, um, the economical keeping, as I say in my herpetological, herpetology lectures, i.e. racks, newspaper, water bowl, hide. There seems to, not necessarily that that's being abandoned, but there does seem to be more of a kind of working towards a middle ground, not necessarily an eight-foot-long, six-foot-tall, three-foot-deep, perfect (laughs) replication of the Guyana shield. But, you know, we're going to have... A, a PVC enclosure with mulch, some sticks, various cage furniture, a thermo gradient, mm-hmm. you know, for the corn snake, if you're you're keeping a handful of animals. But I want to know mm-hmm. what your thoughts are on this, and obviously one more yeah. plug for Roy's pl- podcast, because you've pontificated about this exact yeah. topic, I think, more times than I can count. So...
1: Yeah, you know, I know you're ready I mean, for this one. My so on what our, are your thoughts yeah, on that? That we're we're moving in that direction. I think that we're moving um, toward embracing a little bit more complexity um, in in the way that we're keeping these animals. I think that, um, and I, honestly, I think a lot of it has to do with just just kind of increasing awaref- awareness around welfare and the complexity of herpetofauna. Um, You know, they have, they're such stoic creatures and I think that in many ways, because of that, Mm -hmm. um, they will endure a lot and they have endured a lot in, in captivity over, you know, the, the decades that we've been doing herpetoculture. Um, And I think that as people are becoming more aware of that complexity, there's more there's more of an imperative to like kind of um consider, you know, what is the what is the implication of that, you know, of a snake that just lives in a in a opaque tub its whole life versus one that has, you know, like like what you described, a, a slightly more enriched environment and um you know, the studies that have been done however limited they are up to this point are not really ambiguous about that at all. Um, from what i can tell you know that it's 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 better for the the mental well-being of the, of the snake to be in a, a slightly more complex environment and i think that mm-hmm. um what i one thing that i'm observing with this too is that i think that the people are starting to keep for different reasons in some ways you know um like you mentioned mm-hmm. our podcast you know project herpetoculture um you know every episode closes with asking our listener or our guest why herpetoculture? Like, why do you do this? Um, and part of the reason for that is because I think that there's actually a myriad Mm -hmm. of reasons why people are doing it, um, that are really different from each other, you know? And, um, sometimes I think that we don't really recognize that very well as, as a community, we can kind of get into this, um, picking sides and, and battling one another. (laughs) And I think that it's like, you know, there's, there's room for, Diversity, <laughs> you know. There's room for all of it. Yeah. Um it doesn't have to be contentious mm-hmm, necessarily. Yeah. Um yeah, and so I think that hundred um, percent I see a lot more people that are like they're just keeping stuff because yeah, because they're interested in natural history and they like want a, a slice of nature in their home. Um and because of that they're they're striving for more kind of natural replication um and you know it's definitely also i think being impacted at this point by like social media and um you know th- oh, yeah. that is a whole a whole weird thing you know that like who knows where where we're going with that in a lot of ways you know i i feel like um i have really mixed feelings about it but um it's definitely true that like you know a lot of prominent um keepers you know and and people in the herb community on social media have gotten a lot of criticism and flack for the way that they've kept um and are kind of trending generally in the direction of more naturalistic keeping and kind of advocating for more naturalistic keeping for their animals um and that others should do the same mm-hmm. and i think that that matters you know as much as like I despise that the term, um, influencer is even mm-hmm. a fucking thing. <laughs> Sorry to cuss, but I had to throw that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. <laughs> Um, that's all right. Uh, it's yeah, it's that's like, okay. that's just such right an absurd thing to me. But <laughs> at the same time, it's like, this is the, this is the, the world we're living in. And, um, you know, they're called influencers for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yep. and mm-hmm. yeah, it seems like, yeah, that seems like the general trend. Um, and I think that also it's like, I think that in some ways that it does dovetail a little bit with the criticism and the, um, the kind of opposition that herpetal culture has experienced as a whole, you know, where we're seeing more and more legislation and, you know, the reality is that like, you know, for for the opposition to herpetoculture, there's no better ammunition than showing a, you know, showing pictures yeah. of a bunch of um, snakes in tubs, or you know, it's just it just look it, the optics are bad, essentially, you know, and um, whether the or the not you agree,
0: you can you can yeah yeah you, at some point you had to understand that exactly people don't understand totally. that. We don't keep puppies in tubs. We don't keep gerbils in tubs. We don't keep the bunny rabbit in a yeah. tub. So why the hell are you keeping the snake in the yeah. tub? And I'm not anti-tub. Totally. There's literally tubs in this yeah. room I'm sitting in right now. They serve a purpose. Uh, but it, what we're talking about are the people exactly. who are trying to take these things away from us. <laughs> and, and you know. But at the same time, I'm totally yeah. anti-false water cobra in a tub. Uh, I know a couple people that do it. And I just... Personally, like uh, on on podcasts, a lot of times people say you can do what you want to do. <laughs> don't keep a false water cover in a tub. <laughs> like yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. I can't say that is okay. Um, they they defecate too much. Yeah. The air exchange isn't going to be good for them. They're so freaking active. They respond to light. Like they actively bask where mm-hmm. they live. It's an open habitat. So like at some point, I mm-hmm. feel and I know I'm getting ranty, uh, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think on this particular topic, at some point we do as a community need to be able to take some constructive criticism from within and understand yeah. that change is good. Like it's you, you, just doing things the way we always did them or doing it because it's economical. It's great optics for the people it's that want to exactly, take this away from yeah.
1: us. Yeah. Well so, said. And I think also it's just to, just to be like, <laughs> Totally real about it it's like change Is coming like Like you can resist change All you want Uh but like The act of resistance Is itself a change (laughs) You know (laughs) You know it's It's like (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. kind of like standing up against the rising Of the tide at a certain point you know where Um Change is Mm -hmm. on the way and We can either you know as a community It seems like we can kind of embrace it and try to try to be a little bit more unified in that, and um, put up a unified front, put our best foot forward, um, and and stand a chance. Or we can have you know people who are not stakeholders at all um, make the changes for us, and that's the last thing we want because they're they're not stakeholders. They don't they don't know they don't know why we're doing this thing. They don't know what what it means to us, and. Frankly, yeah. they don't really care. <laughs> no, they, they
0: have no idea why. Yeah, anybody totally. wants to have a hundred snakes in their house. Like we, we have all yeah. had that moment, myself included, on several occasions. Um, and it's weird because the world, I, the ecosystem I dwell in, is a biology building where I'm teaching young people who are coming from yeah. all over the country to learn how to do this. So it's we, it like keeping reptiles and herpetoculture now is. It's an Mm -hmm. overwhelming part of my world, and when I get out of that world and I'm in, like, Mm -hmm. I'm doing air quotes Roy can see them, normal land, and someone asks me, like, what do you do? Great example. (laughs) I got a haircut two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sitting there, and I don't like to talk to people when I'm getting a haircut. I, I, you know, I am an Mm -hmm. introvert, which a lot of people don't realize, and I just want to sit there. Please cut my hair. I'm not going to be a douchebag about it, but yeah. we don't need to have a deep conversation about anything. <laughs> Just cut my hair. And I'm sitting there, and the reason why is I know it's coming, because it always yeah. starts with, so what do you yeah. do? And I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> like, that's what I think. I'm a biology professor at West yeah. Liberty, which is, of course, the local university. Then, oh, well, what do you teach? And I, I always <laughs> say I teach all the animal classes. And then it goes to, oh, do you know anything about that sci major? Or they do something with zoos up there? And I'm like, yeah, I'm the guy in charge of it. And somehow the conversation is going to lead to snakes. And when it leads to snakes in that space, (laughs) I'm no longer in my safe space of the science building. I'm no longer surrounded by the snake nerds. Mm -hmm. I'm out in the open and I'm exposed. And it begins. Well, well, do you have any snakes? I'm like, yeah, I do. Well, and I always say I have a few. You know, I don't want to say I got eighty. Um and then the whole oh well, good uh, you have snakes? What do you mean you have snakes? Wow, like yep. and, and that's the response that, that you that a lot of us get. Um and then here in West Virginia, it oftentimes leads to one of two things. And mm-hmm. I am happy to say it doesn't happen as often as it used to. It used to be one hundred percent of the time, but this was one of those examples. Oh, well yeah. I killed this snake and I killed that snake, and it's just like, oh god, I have to sit here mm-hmm. and I can't like Retaliate the way I want to, but those are the people that, when they hear I have 80 snakes in my house, turn around and are like, This guy's a total fruitcake. So, you know, we, the optics of of how we're keeping them and everything, when we already have that public image to deal with, uh, it does matter. At some point, we need to acknowledge that that matters. And if they, if you walk into that, uh, to a person's collection and it's immaculate and Mm -hmm. you've got, a piece of the rainforest, or the piece of um, the Everglades, or whatever, and it's you know I don't care who you are. Yeah. People look at that and go, "Wow, that's cool." I mean, I've had a lot of people walk into this office and go, "Whoa, this is what mean what it means to keep snakes." And I think that that optic it 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 can shut down the 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 fear factor. Yeah, which is obviously what we're fighting when it comes to people adding regulations and things to us. Very, very quickly, and then we have the chance to slide and do something that's very precious to me, which is educate, educate, educate. When I'm sitting there hearing about how you killed five totally harmless, absolutely wonderful Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Pantherophis alganiensis black rat snakes, and I you know, I have an innate reaction, (laughs) I'm not gonna say in a
1: recording. I can read between (laughs) the lines (laughs) to (laughs) that.
0: Yeah. Um yeah. But, you know, you can't lash out because if you lash out, then you're playing to the yeah. stereotype that he's the crazy snake guy. So we have all that to, to, to fight off and, and deal with. By all means, having nice enclosures mm-hmm. and that being the public face uh, of this is great. Now, what's really interesting is like in zoos, there's mm-hmm. the, the exhibitry that you see in zoos. But uh, sterile keeping is the way, like as, as much mm-hmm. as we don't like it. If you've got to produce hundreds yeah. of indigo snakes, you can't have 10 by 3 yeah. by 4 foot vivs and, and all that kind of stuff. You you have to incorporate um, very large tubs and a more of an economical approach. But And so yeah. conservation, there is a purpose for that. But I think that the front-facing view of herpetoculture, the naturalistic side of keeping, is absolutely going to do us nothing but good. I mean – yeah, getting away from uh, snakes, I can tell you right now, I saw, I've seen some dart frog vivs in the past six months that were like, I don't mm-hmm. care who you are. If you saw those and then realized, like, that's part of herpeticulture, those vivaria are going to put, like, they're going to generate fascination and awe, which is what we need. We don't need well resentment said. and fear. A- absolutely. So. And mean- rant.
1: And that's, Uh, that's, I've (laughs) had that experience so many times at this point, you know, where of, you know, people are like, Oh, you keep snakes? Like, Oh, can I see, can I see, you know, and they've got Mm -hmm. kind of like this gross look on their face. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the wince, like Mm -hmm. the wince, but, but you know, Mm -hmm. there's, there's, Mm -hmm. there's disgust, but there's also curiosity They're, they're, they're side by side. And as soon as they see holy crap it's like vivarium you know and these huge beautiful snakes out basking they're like whoa this is amazing you know like you know i like the place i was living before i had they're just down in the basement of the farmhouse you know and people would be like you want to go down to the basement they're like oh god what's this gonna be like they're like this is Mm -hmm. this is gonna be weird this is gonna be really creepy (laughs) and they come down there they're like oh my god this is like Uh cal academy Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know (laughs) and it's like, yeah, it's cool. It's like, yeah. nice. that's what it, 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 and then, it, and then for me, like you, like, just like you said, you know, as like someone who cares about the education opponent, it's like, I'm like, okay, now's my moment. <laughs> I can make my pitch, you know, for like, why this matters, <laughs> why this is important. Mm-hmm. And like, yep. yeah, it's like, that's all it takes. You know, it's the same thing. You know, I do, I do work with like, you know, mm-hmm. rattlesnake conflict mitigation stuff. And it's the same thing, you know, like you said, Oh, I killed, I killed 10 of those last year, you know? And for me, it's like, I'm always just looking for like, okay, where is that little bit where there's like a little bit of a, there, there's the fear, there's the disgust, but there's always a little bit of curiosity and fascination too. And it's like, if you can get that and yes. just like leverage that a little bit and pry yep. it open, that's where it's all. That's where the the change can happen, you know? And um, yeah, I agree. It's like, we talk a lot on, on, on our podcast about, the dart frog community and also like reef tanks, you know, it's like the connotations of those yeah, are so different, you know, as, as they relate to how the outsider, you know, <laughs> perceives it. And I think that we could use a little bit more of that as a community. Um, it would do us good.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, this was great. Thoroughly enjoyed having you on man you'll definitely if the invitation yeah. will be there great, to talk man. about other Anytime. things just so really you know so it. um so if people want to get a hold of you
1: uh, yeah so you can find how me on do they facebook? go about doing that um roy arthur blodgett is my name um i'm also on instagram at wellspring herpetoculture i have a wellspring herpetoculture page there if you want to um like or follow that on on facebook and not be my friend that's fine too um <laughs> And um, I post probably more regularly on Instagram (laughs) because I I like to take photos of everything and post little videos and stuff like that. So that's probably the best place. And, yeah, you can catch our podcast at Project Herpetoculture. Yep. Thank you.
0: All righty. Well, thank you, sir, uh, for coming on. This was great. And you can find me at uh, Zach Loafman on Facebook. Uh, Look me up online. I'm always looking for grad students who are into this thing, and if you're listening to this and you're in high school and you want to go to college and literally work with snakes every day you're in school, uh, hit me up for that as well, because we have our Zoo Sci undergraduate degree, and I don't ever plug that. I always plug for grad students, but you know, we have students from literally all over the country doing that, and over 400 individual animals on campus, so... Including Spilodes pilatus, we don't have sulfurus. Well, we have uh, the other guy. Um, In fact, one of our our male is—he's—he—it's really funny. We got the male, and I thought he was big, and then I hadn't really worked him, worked with him for a couple years, and now he's big. He was not big before. I mean, Mm he's—he's an eight, maybe nine foot monster. Um, Anyway, uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Dr. Crawdad. And then Matt, even though he wasn't here in person, he's always here in spirit. Uh, you can find him at Serpimetra. Uh, I know that Matt has stopped shipping until after the holiday season. So there is that, uh, that piece. And we're doing this right before Thanksgiving. So have a happy turkey day and be sure to eat your theropod, i.e. dinosaur. So that's what I tell all my students at West Liberty. Um, so with that being said, have a happy. See ya.